Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. The reading is taken from the book of Nehemiah, chapter 9, verses 1 to 38, and that can be found on page 492 in the Church Bibles. On the 24th day of the same month, the Israelites gathered together, fasting and wearing sackcloth and putting dust on their heads. Those of Israelite descent had separated themselves from all foreigners. They stood in their places and confessed their sins and the sins of their ancestors. They stood where they were and read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day and spent another quarter in confession and in worshipping the Lord their God. Standing on the stairs of the Levites were Jeshua, Bani, Kadmiel, Shebaniah, Buni, Sherebiah, Bani, and Kanani. They cried out with loud voices to the Lord their God. And the Levites, Jeshua, Kadmiel, Bani, Hashabaniah, Sherebiah, Hodiah, Shebaniah, and Pathiah said, Stand up and praise the Lord your God, who is from everlasting to everlasting. Blessed be your glorious name, and may it be exalted above all blessings and praise. You alone are the Lord. You made the heavens, even the highest heavens, and all their starry host, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them. You give life to everything, and the multitudes of heaven worship you. You are the Lord God who chose Abram and brought him out of Ur of the Chaldeans and named him Abraham. You found his heart faithful to you and made a covenant with him to give to his descendants the land of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Jebusites, and Girgashites. You have kept your promise because you are righteous. You saw the suffering of our ancestors in Egypt. You heard their cry at the Red Sea. You sent signs and wonders against Pharaoh against all his officials and all the people of his land. For you knew how arrogantly the Egyptians treated them. You made a name for yourself, which remains to this day. You divided the sea before them so that they passed through it on dry ground. But you buried their pursuers in the depths like a stone into mighty waters. By day you led them with a pillar of cloud and by night with a pillar of fire to give them light on the way they were to take. You came down on Mount Sinai. You spoke to them from heaven. You gave them regulations and laws that are just and right, and decrees and commands that are good. You made known to them your holy Sabbath and gave them commands, decrees, and laws through your servant Moses. In their hunger, you gave them bread from heaven, And in their thirst, you brought them water from the rock. You told them to go in and take possession of the land you had sworn with uplifted hand to give them. 
But they, our ancestors, became arrogant and stiff-necked, and they did not obey your commands. They refused to listen and failed to remember the miracles you performed among them. They became stiff-necked and in their rebellion appointed a leader in order to return to their slavery. But you are a forgiving God, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. Therefore, you did not desert them, even when they cast themselves and they made you a calf and said, this is our God you brought, who brought you up out of Egypt, or when they committed, committed awful blasphemies. Because of your great compassion, you did not abandon them in the wilderness. By day, the pillar of cloud did not fail to guide them on their path, nor the pillar of fire by night to shine on the way they were to take. You gave your good spirit to instruct them. You did not withhold your manna from their mouths, and you gave them water for their thirst. For forty years you sustained them in the wilderness. They lacked nothing. Their clothes did not wear out, nor did their feet become swollen. You gave them kingdoms and nations, allotting to them even the remotest frontiers. They took over the country of Sion, king of Heshbon, and the country of Og, king of Bashan. You made their children as numerous as the stars in the sky, and you brought them into the land that you told their parents to enter and possess. Their children went in and took possession of the land. You subdued before them the Canaanites who lived in the land. You gave the Canaanites into their hands, along with their kings and the peoples of the land, to deal with them as they pleased. They captured fortified cities and fertile land, they took possession of houses filled with all kinds of good things, wells already dug, vineyards, olive groves, and fruit trees in abundance. They ate to the full and were well nourished. They reveled in your great goodness. But they were disobedient and rebelled against you. They turned their backs on your law. They killed your prophets who had warned them in order to turn them back to you. They committed awful blasphemies. So you delivered them into the hands of their enemies who oppressed them. But when they were oppressed, they cried out to you. From heaven you heard them, and in your great compassion you gave them deliverers who rescued them from the hands of their enemies. But as soon as they were at rest, they again did what was evil in your sight. Then you abandoned them to the hand of their enemies so that they ruled over them. And when they cried out to you again, you heard from heaven, and in your compassion you delivered them time after time. You warned them in order to turn them back to your law, but they became arrogant and disobeyed your commands. They sinned against your ordinances of which you said, the person who obeys them will live by them. Stubbornly, they turned their backs on you, became stiff-necked, and refused to listen. For many years you were patient with them. By your spirit, you warned them through your prophets. Yet they paid no attention, so they gave, you gave them into the hands of their neighboring peoples. But in your great mercy, you did not put an end to them or abandon them. For you are a gracious and merciful God. Now, therefore, our God, the great God, mighty and awesome, 
who keeps his covenant of love. Do not let all this hardship seem trifling in your eyes, the hardship that has come on us, on our kings and leaders, on our priests and prophets, on our ancestors and all your people, from the days of the king of Assyria until today. In all that has happened to us, you have remained righteous. You have acted faithfully while we acted wickedly. Our kings, our leaders, our priests, and our ancestors did not follow your law. They did not pay attention to your commands or the statutes who warned them to keep. Even while they were in their kingdom, enjoying your great goodness to them in the spacious and fertile land you gave them, they did not serve you or turn from their evil ways. But see, we are slaves today. Slaves in the land you gave our ancestors so that they could eat its fruit and the other good things it produces. Because of our sins, its abundant harvest goes to the kings you have placed over us. They rule over our bodies and our cattle as they please. We are in great distress. In view of all this, we are making a binding agreement putting it in writing, and our leaders, our Levites, and our priests are affixing their seals to it. This is the word of the Lord. She's still standing. (laughs) Thank you very much, Sue. Well, that's a wonderful prayer, isn't it? And you can't help but feel we are on holy ground this morning. And so would you join me as we pray? Our great and heavenly Father, we pray that you would help your word to speak truth and give life this morning. Give each one of us a soft heart to hear and receive your word of love and encouragement. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I was nine years old and I found myself with my back against the wall. I'd been wrongly accused of misbehaving at, uh, at, during the dinner time and the dinner lady had told me to go and stand against the wall, which was very hard because, of course, all the lads, everyone was playing football. Fortunately, one of the dinner ladies, another dinner lady came along after about five minutes and said, it's okay, Johnny, off you can go now. So I ran off and started to kick the ball around, and then from behind me, this voice cried out, Johnny, get back to the wall. I did not give you permission to leave. The original dinner lady had spotted that I'd left, and she assumed that I'd left out of my own free will. But standing by the wall, I remember vividly, even in this moment, crying uncontrollably. Now, as a nine-year-old, I had a very bad temper. But I also had this really strong sense of injustice, and I had been wrongly accused. So what would you do in that situation? I ran away from school. (laughs) And I vividly remember a car pulling alongside me and the window being wound down, and my headmaster, Mr. Moss, saying, Johnny, get back in the car. No, I'm not getting back in the car. Johnny, come on, get back in the car. Don't be silly. No, I refuse to. Eventually, he persuaded me to get back into the car, and he listened to me. He comforted me. He understood my pain and my frustration. He actually drove me home and explained the whole scenario and situation to my parents. And then he took me home. 
And I know, uh, no, talk me back to school, and I know in one sense it's a, it's a silly little story, but for me it's always been quite an important story. Because for me it was a sort of comeback story of feeling lost and on my own as I stood with my back against that wall. And my headmaster came and he found me and he brought me back. You know, we love, don't we, comeback stories. You know, the stories of sports stars who, who lost it and then they found their way back. Because I guess we see ourselves in those stories. Uh, we see something of, of the resolve and we see our resolve, our grit, our hope. For us, so often it is a, a major setback. Cancer, divorce, job loss, the death of a loved one, bankruptcy, an accident that puts the spotlight on our lives and shows us the way to a meaningful second act. You see, sooner or later, life slips up. It happens to everyone. At some point, we will wind up with our backs against the wall and we'll need a comeback. And I think part of why we love stories like that is because of the longing that we have, so many of us, for a spiritual renewal and recovery. And in the gospel, we have God's way of recovery, God's way of renewal. And whoever you are this morning, whoever, uh, you're, wherever you're from, uh, whatever the troubles are that you walk into this room carrying, the Lord Jesus Christ says you can make a comeback. You may feel stuck this morning in those same patterns and addictions, the same behaviors. You're just stuck in them. And the gospel holds out this hope. You can come back. Now, I love that quote from a church father who said these words. Even when we fail, always we begin again. You see, we will fail. We will. That's not in question. But each stumble is an opportunity to begin again and renew a right relationship with God. And so if you're here this morning and you long for renewal, for heart renewal, for gospel renewal, if that's one of the deepest longings of your person but you have no idea how to make that happen in a real long and lasting way, well, the good news is, is that Nehemiah is a book about renewal. Now, do you remember where we are in our story? Nehemiah is Jewish and he lives in Persia. Uh, this is after the exile, after Babylon, after the Persian Empire has laid waste to the city of Jerusalem, to God's city and to God's people. And Nehemiah has been commissioned and called to go and restore the ruins of God's city. And we've seen that amazingly, in less than two months, under great stress, they have rebuilt the wall. And that was at the end of chapter 6. And at the beginning of chapter 7. And it's very easy for us to think at this point that the book is over. Now you, you think that the book of Nehemiah can end at this point because he's gone back and the, the walls have been rebuilt. There's been a physical renewal. But as we saw in chapter 7 and chapter 8, it doesn't stop there. And that's because Nehemiah is not just a book about the restoration of the city, but it's a book about the restoration of God's people. And our God, surely, it's the same God today, isn't it? And I believe he is just as eager to give us the fullness of his blessing today as he was yesterday. You see, he never withholds his kindness for any capricious reason of his own heart, but only waits for those of us who love him to seek after him as Nehemiah and the people of God did. 
And in our text this morning, we are given four things the people did that led to renewal. And as we look at this passage together briefly, we could, if we so like, we could ask ourselves this morning, you know, if we are longing for a fresh outpouring of God's Spirit in our lives, if we are longing for that spiritual comeback, we could ask ourselves, are we willing to do these four things? And the first one is a return to God's Word. Now, if you remember, in Nehemiah chapter 8, there was a, a celebration of, of the walls being completed, and, and then there was, this was met by a large gathering of thousands of people to hear God's Word read. And the focus was not on the walls themselves, but on the renewal, on the restoration, the redemption and the rebuilding of God's people. The focus was on the people, not the walls. And how were they renewed? Do you remember? God's people came together under God's Word. And we read back there in chapter 8, verse 3, the people listened attentively to it. And so we see the ministry of the Word is the backbone of any spiritual renewal. And as the Word was read, the people in chapter 8, you remember, they, they dissolve, don't they, into sadness. They weep. They're sorrowful. They're convicted of their sin. You know, how they've ruined and rebelled and lost the privileges of being God's people. But chapter 8 doesn't end there because Ezra and Nehemiah, they came and, and said in chapter 8, verse 11, do not grieve because Israel was in a season of celebration. This was the festival month. This is a month to celebrate. It's the seventh month. And so they celebrated the Feast of Trumpets and the Feast of Tabernacles. And then that brings us to chapter 9. And you see, chapter 9, verse 1 says that it was the 24th day of the same month, the seventh month. Meaning that just over... Three weeks have passed since Ezra got up on that makeshift pulpit, remember that beginning, chapter 8, and preached from the book of the Lord. Three weeks later, the festival season is over, and now the people, they return again to the Word of God, and they read the account of God's mercy and of His faithfulness to them over the years, and they recount it, of course, in the prayer. And what do we see? They're convicted again of their need of God. We see here this renewed contrition which follows. Verse 1, see that? Which leads them to this prayer. And incidentally, Nehemiah chapter 9 is the longest prayer of this kind in the Bible. This corporate confession of sin. And so, it's worth asking ourselves, how can we be renewed? Where does renewal begin? And Nehemiah chapter 9 reminds us that the renewal begins by going back to the basics, by gathering around and under God's Word, which gives us a fresh vision of who God is and consequently who we are. And so, you see, in response to God's Word, verse 2, it tells us that they have separated from the foreign voices. The influences that would have assimilated them and taken away their identity. You see, they're different from the other nations. This region around them is filled with people groups worshipping idols. And God is saying here, I want you to take an oath. I want you, I want you to swear in the midst of all the idol-worshipping nations that surround you that you will be set apart, that you will be my people. And in actual fact, Nehemiah chapter 9 and chapter 10 is a covenant 
to do just that. With the names listed in chapter 10, verses 1 to 27, signing the agreement on behalf of all the people. The people are gathering under God's word. Look at verse 3. They stood where they were and read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day. That's three hours. And then spent another quarter in confession and in worshipping the Lord their God. So begin by reading the word and then they come together in worship. So you do notice here that every action, every single action of this chapter, so their confession and their worship, they're crying out with loud voices in verse 4, their praise to God in verse 5, praise the Lord who is from everlasting to everlasting, and then their prayer of confession, verses 6 to 38, Everything in this chapter, it flows from, it's produced by, it's a direct consequence of gathering under the Word of God. You see, this is a renewal built upon the treasures of God's Word. And so you see the pattern there is the reading, the preaching of the Word of God, and there is renewal. There is worship, there is confession, there is prayer. And so what we have here is we have Word, And then confession, worship, renewal. And if you're here this morning and you're stuck and you long for renewal, you long again for that sense of excitement, that sense of expectation, that sense that God is speaking to you. If you really want to change, then we see the importance here of a sustained attending to the Word of God. It will be a different response for each one of us. You know, it may just be introducing the reading of the Bible back into our daily routine. It may seem like a, like a little thing to do that, but you know that's a huge step of faith. Now, why not try it? That's the first thing, a return to God's Word. Second, I want you to notice also there is a reflection on God's goodness. Now, I'll say this to you. This is not something that I grew up hearing about. In the churches that I was in when I grew up, it was all about sin and death and judgment. We did an awful lot of that, but we didn't think about this. Did you know that God is good? He is, actually. And do you know something else? that, And I find this overwhelming, that he actually wants good, good, good things for us and good things for me. That's his joy and that's his delight. So we see here a reflection on God's goodness. This is wonderful. Look at it with me. Now, effectively, what we've got here is the whole of this chapter is pretty much the devoted, is devoted to the prayer, really, that the people offered. And it's an amazing prayer, isn't it? It's full of praise for what God is. And we see what God has done. And again and again, you see the, the, how the people, how God has tenderly led them and guided them all the way through their history. And yet, despite all of God's goodness, in spite of all of that, what we see again and again, even in the face of God's goodness to them, is this repeated rebellion, this repeated failure. And yet... Praise the Lord. Again and again, that failure was matched by a fresh outpouring of the grace of God. He's pretty good, our God, isn't he? And as the people counted their blessings one by one in these verses, they found them to be innumerable. You'll notice, for example, in verses 6 to 15, the constant repetition of the word and. 
as they reflect upon God's goodness. I'll just go through this very quickly, but get the gist of it. Verse 6, you gave life to everything and the multitudes of heaven worship you. Verse 7, you are the Lord God who chose Abraham and brought him out of Ur of the Chaldeans and named him Abraham and made a covenant with him. Verse 9, and you saw the suffering of our ancestors in Egypt and you heard their cry at the Red Sea. And you sent signs and wonders against Pharaoh. And verse 11, you divided the sea before them and you hurled their pursuers into the depths. Verse 12, and by day you led them with a pillar of cloud and by night with a pillar of fire. And verse 13, you spoke to them from heaven. And you made known to them your holy Sabbath. Verse 15, and in their thirst you brought them water from the rock and you told them to take possession of the land you had sworn to them. You see, what we have in those verses is a constant repetition of the faithfulness of God throughout the life of Israel, of God's goodness, of God's kindness, of God's blessing. And note, would you, verse 16, and the word but... In spite of all God's goodness, how stubborn the people, you know, how unyielding these people, how proud they are. Look at this, verse 16. But they, our ancestors, became arrogant and stiff-necked, and they did not obey your commands. Notice, however, middle of verse 17. But you are a forgiving God, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. Verse 19. Because of your great compassion, you did not abandon them in the wilderness. And then go down to verse 26, 27. Once again, but they were disobedient, so you delivered them into the hands of their enemies. Verse 28, but as soon as they were at rest, they again did what was evil in your sight. And when they cried out to you again, you heard them from heaven, and your compassion delivered them time after time. Verse 30, for many years you were patient with them. By your spirit you warned them through your prophets, that yet they paid no attention, so you gave them into the hands of the neighboring peoples. But in your great mercy you did not abandon them, for you are a gracious and merciful God. Now what a wonderful story of God's goodness to the people of Israel. But is that not the story of God's grace and goodness to each one of us here this morning? Is it not? Is it not the story of our own indifference and rebellion and coldness towards God? And in God's great mercy, He has not abandoned us. So let me ask you this question this morning, a question that I've asked myself this week. Do you ever take time to reflect on the goodness of God? As I said, if you're anything like me, you're not good at this. Or at least you've not been good at this over the years. I've got better. You know, there at the beginning of chapter 9, in the third verse, we're told that they spent effectively three hours in the Word of God and three hours in prayer and worship. Three hours, if you like, in heart-searching and three hours in worship. You see, it takes time for that spirit of prayer to get hold of people. We can't just rush it. You see, extended thanksgiving puts things in perspective. Now, just suppose, let me me make a suggestion. It might not be realistic, but I'll throw it this way, throw it at you anyway. But just suppose that, that we were to take a few hours. Is that too much? Maybe it is. Maybe an hour or two. And to do just that, you know, to lay down our tasks 
and show the Lord that fellowship with him was, was more important than anything else in the world. Just suppose that you took time to reflect on God's goodness and to go back over the story of your life. The milestones past which he has led you. The path along which he has brought you. And what a blessing that could be to reflect on God's goodness. You know, if you are feeling this morning angry with God, feeling let down, maybe you're feeling bitter towards him. Maybe you're stuck this morning. You know, I think this would be a good thing for your soul to sit and remember your God and the way that he has blessed you repeatedly. Yes, I know, oh, I know, it's not easy. And I know there's plenty around us to look and think, really, are you there? But actually, if we look back, I think we'd be surprised. I'm reminded of the old hymn, when upon life's billows you are tempest-tossed, when you are discouraged, thinking all is lost, count your many blessings, name them one by one, and it will surprise you what the Lord has. Amen. So we see renewal comes by reflecting on God's Word, also through taking time to reflect upon God's goodness, but also Thirdly, through recognizing our sinfulness. You know, in the last few years, I've made a point of asking my parents about questions around their life, about their life, and I realized that they are the connection to the past. So it's been really interesting to find out more about, about, about them, about, um, my, about my grandparents, about their grandparents, who I never actually met. You know, what were they like? How did they meet? You know, tell me about granddad landing Apparently, I landed on D-Day plus six on the Normandy beaches. Tell me about that. Tell me about Granny. Apparently, my Granny, uh, she flew in a biplane in the 1930s. You know, what, what on earth was she doing flying in a biplane to France in the 1930s? Tell me about that. So, you see, by asking these questions, I've got to hear the stories, the narrative of my ancestors, what they were like, where they lived, uh, how they loved one another, how they fell out with one another. And I've discovered that I share a middle name with six previous generations. And, and you know, well, Nehemiah here in chapter 9 gives us really what effectively is our spiritual history as God's people because, you see, we're not only in union with Jesus, we're also in union with one another, with God's people. And so we are tied through Christ to the, this, this story, to these people. And we know, don't we, that their story was not always a pretty story. We've seen it. It's been repeated for us in this prayer. They had misadventures. They had plenty of messes up. They were certainly full of doubt. But what we see again and again is that God did not give up on them. He loved his people with all their warts and with all their blemishes and with all their stumblings and fallings. The Lord kept his steadfast love for his people. And it's a history of contrast between who God is and who we are. And, and you can see that in the pronouns of the prayer. The you, if you like, versus they. And it's all over the prayer. And so verse 6 begins, you alone are the Lord. And then carries on through the prayer. Verse 6, you give life to everything. Verse 8, you have kept your promise. Verse 17, you are a forgiving God. And so on and so forth. And then in contrast, we see how the word they is used talking about the people of God. 
And so verse 16, but they, our ancestors, became arrogant and stiff-necked, and they did not obey your commands. They refused to listen, verse 26. But they were disobedient and rebelled against you. They turned their backs on your law. They killed your prophets. And all throughout this prayer, we see this sort of back and forth between the faithfulness of God and the failure of God's people. And so as we have surveyed this vast landscape of this prayer of Old Testament history, we we get this true sense of the mercy of God. And then we also get this true sense at the same time, if I can put it this way, of our own mediocrity. You see, it introduces us once again, in other words, to ourselves. You see, we are all chronically prone to trust in our own strength, our own currency, our own attractiveness, our own faithfulness. And we need to be weaned off that. One author said, saints burn grace like airplanes burn fuel. You know, do we need grace? Do you need grace this morning? Because this is us. This is us. This is our story. This prayer, if we're honest, is us. Ingratitude, inconsistent, fickle, failures. This is us. And actually, much of the Christian life is learning to actually believe the language in this prayer. That God comes after us like my headmaster came after me. See, much of the Christian life is learning to believe that, to actually let these words be words that lead us home. You are the giver of life. You have kept your promise. You are a God ready to forgive. Do you believe these words? To let these words be words that lead us out of hiding and take us home. Is this language familiar to your heart? No, God, you have been faithful. I have been unfaithful. You have been loving. I have been lukewarm in my love for you. You have been committed to me. I have been fickle with you. Is this language familiar? Can you identify that in your life story? I certainly can. And so where are we this morning? Do you see in this prayer your life? Do you see that it's here? I am inconsistent. I'm in lukewarm. I'm fickle. And most tragic of all, I am blind. And I can't even see it. If you sit here this morning and don't see that in your life, then you're blind, brother and sister. For this is us. And so there is a way. There is a way, a road to renewal. But we have to own it for ourselves. And the road to renewal is to break the silence, to bring your failure into the open, into the light, and no longer hide. And how do we do that? What does it look like? How do you start? Now, one commentator I was reading this week was really helpful, and he said, we can note that their confession of sin was sincere, specific, and realistic. And he said that this confession was sincere. So verse 1 says that they were fasting, They were wearing sackcloth and having dust on their heads. And the commentator said, this was not an affected acknowledgement of occasional mistakes, but they had behaved and and dressed as grief-stricken mourners. So this was sincere confession. 
And then he goes on to say that this was a specific confession. He says, there are no vague phrases, but they itemize their sin, spelling them out in ugly detail. Their confession does not mechanically lump together their sin in some ritualistic phrase as the beginning of a formal sin. And so they don't describe themselves, notice, as, as sinners. They spelled out how they sinned. And so this is a sincere confession. This is a specific confession. And 30 says it was a realistic confession because the prayer doesn't simply reference what happened with their fathers just in the past. They're not sidestepping this. There's no blame shifting. There's no defensiveness. They took responsibility for what they have done. You see, you notice this shift in the pronouns from the past day to the present in verse 33. So we go from the ancestors rebelling then to owning it for themselves in verse 33. There's the shift. And we get really this great summary line of the prayer. Notice this. This is what they say. In all that has happened to us, you have acted faithfully, while we, not they, while we acted wickedly. And so you'll see here, and I know that was very rushed and very quick, but I wanted to push through that. What you see here is that our confession is sincere, it was specific, and it was realistic. I acknowledged my part in that. So my question, I guess, is what about us? If we have a heart and a longing for renewal, a fresh outpouring of God's Spirit, not only on us, but on our people here within the church, within our neighborhood, within our, within our country, what about us? How long has it been since we last sat down before the Lord with empty hands, with a sincere specific, realistic confession of sin. Well, remember this. Always we begin again. So we need to return to God's Word, to reflect on God's goodness, to recognize our sinfulness. And fourthly and finally, renew our commitment. Look at verse 38. In view of all this, we are making a binding agreement, putting it in writing, and our leaders, our Levites, and our priests are affixing their seals to it. And this is, as I said a few moments ago, this is a covenant renewal. This is what happened actually in the Old Testament on multiple times when, when the people of God came back to him. Uh, and so this here in Nehemiah chapter 9, this is, this is a new chapter effectively in their history. This is a new work. This is a, a new mission because of all that God has done, they are returning to Jerusalem from exile and they commit themselves anew to God. It's a story we've seen, haven't we, of stumbling and fail, failing, falling over as they seek to reach the finish line. And the question is, are the people of God going to make it? And as I was, I was pondering, as I was preparing for this sermon and thinking about where, where we might be, I was reminded of a video I saw a few years ago on the internet of a young boy at a Chelsea football game. And the video made its way across multiple platforms. And this little boy, he mustn't have been older than maybe two years old. Um, it was uh, sort of the end of the season and all the families and, and, and everybody was sort of at, uh, standing around the middle of, 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 of the ground. And, uh, and, and the little boy, I think he was, he was two years, I think he was actually uh, one of the sons of one of the, football, of one of the goalkeepers. And I say it was the end of the season. And this little boy, he had a, a football in front of him, just in front of his, his feet. And uh, he was somewhere in the center of, of the pitch. And the stands, you can imagine, they're packed. And the cameraman 
suddenly focuses in on this little boy as he begins to make his way towards the goals. And you can, you can see, if you watch the video and you can look it up, there's this sort of energy and excitement in the stands as he makes his way towards it. And on his way, he probably trips three, four times, and he's stumbling along on his way. But the fans, you can hear them, they're getting more and more excited as he gets nearer to the goal. Is he going to make it? Is he going to score the goal? Are you stumbling along this morning? Do you long to know God in a renewed way? Then see the pattern. There is the word. And then there is confession. And then there is a a realization that God is good and a reflection on that. And there is renewal. And all that the people of God have been doing for these last few weeks and months, they were nourished and strengthened as they they were built up, reading the studying the Word of God. And it's brought them to this point. You see, they sit, as it were, before and under the Word of God, and they are determined. They want to start afresh. They want a new start. This is the longing in their hearts. Do you have the same longing this morning? Do you long to begin again, to start afresh? And as you're watching this, this video of the little boy, you can't help yourself, but your smile gets wider and wider. It's so much fun as this two-year-old is making his way to the goal, and eventually he gets to the goal, and he kicks the ball in, and the stadium literally goes nuts. It's pandemonium. It's bedlam in the stadium. The crowds are just going absolutely wild. And I remember the video because someone posted it on Twitter and they posted it with this comment. How the angels in heaven react when a sinner comes home to Jesus. And you may feel this morning that you are not a pretty story. Welcome to the club. Maybe you've had your misadventures and your troubles and your doubts and a broken past. You have warts and blemishes. Your life has been filled like that little boy with a kind of stumbling and falling along the way. But don't assume it's too dark. It's too messy. It's too late or it's too much to ask of such a faithful God. You see, always we begin again. And so you don't have to be good enough. You don't have to trust that Jesus is not going to forget you. You just need to trust that he is good enough. You need to know that he has dealt with your sin at the cross, that grace is more than sufficient. You see, while he was still a far way off, the father saw him, and he ran, and he embraced, and he kissed him. You see, that's renewal, sinking into the deep love of the father, turning back into the father's arms. Don't you want that this morning? Always we begin again. Come ye weary, heavy laden, lost and ruined by the fall. If you tarry till you're better, you will never come at all. And that's an invitation for each one of us. Come home. Come back to Jesus today. Amen.
Let me just pray very briefly. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this privilege of sitting under it. We thank you that you are that relentless Father who is full of relentless love, that you never give up on us. So we pray even this morning that you would hear our heart cry in your name. Amen.